Let's go ahead and have a uh, quick word of prayer, and then we'll get into the message. Uh, Lord, as always, you taught this. Help us to listen and understand. Let your spirit lead. And once again, not just to hear it, mark it, underline it, but to really apply it. And all we do and all we say, we say thank you in your name. Amen. Acts 27. Lord willing, time willing, we're going to try to do the entire chapter here. Just to kind of give a quick little background to how we got to this point, a few chapters ago it was prophesied over Paul that he was going to be arrested and eventually be taken to Rome. And the Lord was going to use that. So Paul was exactly that, arrested in Jerusalem. He got a chance to witness to the Jerusalem mob, and he got a chance to witness to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish rulership of the time. Then the Roman governor, and then the Roman governor, and then King Agrippa. And then Paul used his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. Because he was not getting a fair trial, he knew he was going to get a fair trial. And so he said, I appeal to Caesar. He has the right to there do that. So now they're sending him to Rome. But this has all been prophesied. 20, 25 years ago, God said to Paul that you would be used to witness before kings and leaders. And that's what's happening. Just a few chapters ago in Acts 23, he said, Paul, you're going to be able to go to Rome. And that's what he does. He gets to go to Rome today in Acts 27. But he gets to go to Rome on a prison ship. We talked a couple weeks ago about how sometimes the Lord lays things on our heart and the way it works out is not the way we think it should work out or the way we would hope it would work out, but the Lord still uses it for good. And he's going to be on a ship today and the ship is going to get shipwrecked. Sometimes we're in God's perfect will and the shipwrecks still happen. And the shipwrecks are opportunity because through this shipwreck, Paul is able to witness to the entire group of people on the ship, 276 people. He's able to crash on an island and witness and bring the gospel to them. This shipwreck leads to people coming to know Jesus Christ. And we need to be willing to allow those shipwrecks in our lives. See, now most of the time we're hoping for just smooth sailing. We want blue skies and sun and just pretty little cumulus clouds. But the truth is, sometimes the Lord says the greater witness is through the shipwreck. And if you're here this morning and your life is a shipwreck or it seems like you're going to, realize that may be where the Lord wants you to be. Are we willing and able to say we're allowing these difficult times to be used by God? Do we not want it to happen? Of course not. We want the smooth sailing. I remember when we were driving home from Mexico a couple months ago, we were driving through California and through the desert. It was so hot that our phones started overheating and they wouldn't work. And as we're praying, and we've been praying for just ministry opportunities, and we want to represent you, and I'm thinking, what happens if we break down in the middle of the desert of California? Then the tow truck guy is going to come, and we're going to witness to him, and he's going to get saved. And I stopped, and I thought, I don't want that, Lord. Just get me through the desert, you know? I don't want the shipwreck. But it'd be this great, I don't want the great story. I don't want the great testimony. I want the great story and testimony to be that we got through everything safe and fine. And that's how we are sometimes as believers. Lord, I want to glorify you by everything going good. Sometimes God says, it's the shipwreck that leads people to me. And remember what we've said about Paul. Paul said a few chapters ago, he goes, I've given my life completely over to the Lord. I no longer exist. He says in Corinthians, I have been bought at a price. I'm not my own. Now think about that. God created you and God bought you. He doubly owns you. You're the Lord's. And however he wants to use us for his glory, then let him use it for his glory. In Acts 27, it's a shipwreck that he uses for his glory. Now, there's a lot of names, there's a lot of towns, and a lot of locations that don't mean much to us because we're not familiar with the Mediterranean Sea. We'd be familiar if we were using towns and names around here. If I said you're going to come through Melinda, Hamler, then head east to go to Desh, so that makes sense to you. This doesn't make sense to us. If you look in the back of your Bible, you probably have a map. And on that map, it's going to be called Paul's Fourth Missionary Journey. 
and you're going to see a little map with an arrow that's going to take you through all these different locations and towns and ports that they stop at. So if you are reading through this with me and you start getting lost, don't let your mind wander. Just jump back to that map. Take a look at it, and it will show you the path that Paul is taking. So with that being said, let's jump into this. Acts chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship of Adramatium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Now, Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. It's really easy at this point to already stop and say, I'm lost with some of this. Note verse 1. Let's break it down simply. We're using first person now, the word we. That means Luke's with them. Luke has written the Gospel of Acts. Excuse me, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts. So that means Luke is now with them. So Luke is taking this prison ship with Paul to support and encourage on the way to Rome. That's why it's in first person. Next thing you see in verse 1 is you see the Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. This is a Roman centurion. This would have been a ship full of prisoners as well. So they sent Roman soldiers along to keep everything in order, to keep everything safe. Verse 2. They talk about the ship and starting to sail. These ships that we can tell were very long ships, very wide ships. These ships were not maneuverable in much ways whatsoever. Some of them only had one sail. They were not designed to sail against the wind and be maneuverable. These were big ships carrying a lot of people, a lot of grain, a lot of goods, and they moved very methodically slowly as the wind took them across. That's going to come up a lot later, so keep that in the back of your mind. And then verse 2, we're introduced to Aristarchus. Now, we really shouldn't be introduced to him. He's actually mentioned five times in the Bible. He's one of those names, though, that we kind of skip over and forget about. We were first introduced to him back in Acts 19. There was a mob, and he got involved in the middle of it because he was one of Paul's companions. He wasn't part of the mob trying to hurt Paul. He was one of the good guys. Then he's with Paul again in Acts 20. Then we know in the book of Colossians, he's called a fellow prisoner of Paul. Now, does that mean he was literally a prisoner? We don't know. Maybe he was just there with Paul, ministering with Paul, staying with Paul. And so Paul looked at him as a fellow prisoner with me because he gave up his life to stay with me. Or it may mean that he was arrested too. That just wasn't recorded in the scriptures. We know in the book of Philemon, he's called a fellow laborer of Paul. So this guy is mentioned five times in the Bible. And every time you see him, he's working hard. He's at a mob. Now he's on a prison ship. Fellow prisoner of Paul, fellow laborer of Paul, this is one of those guys you want to serve with. He's right there with you. And what it comes down to with this Aristarchus, you want these, you need these people in your life. When the going gets tough, this is the guy that you want beside you. He's going to go with you on the prison ship to Rome. He's going to be with you in prison. He's going to be the fellow laborer. When the mob happens, he's still going to be there with you. What a blessing it is to have these people. It says in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we're supposed to comfort the faint-hearted and uphold the weak. That's what Aristarchus does. When you're going through a difficult time, you know they're going to be there to represent Jesus Christ, to encourage you in the word, and to help you out in your walk and relationship with Christ. That's what you want. And the catch is you also want to be that to other people. If you're not going through a difficult time right now, maybe you're the aristocrat to somebody else. You're there to comfort the faint-hearted and uphold the weak. Because there's going to be seasons in life. There's going to be a season where you need the aristocrat, and you're thankful that they're there to comfort the faint-hearted and uphold the weak. And then there's seasons in life where you are him to other people. I don't know what season you are here, but just realize you need them, and there's going to be a time where you're going to be them. What a blessing they have are to have in our lives, and that's what you see right here. Let's move on, verse 3. And the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. 
When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. See, we're starting to see that now, how the wind affects the ship. Verse 5, And when we sailed over the sea, which is off Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lysiah. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. Changed ships. This ship took them so far. Now it's time to get on another ship, and this is the ship that's going to take them, hopefully, to Rome. Verse 7, when we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Sendus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salon. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. You see now how the storm and the wind is affecting the ship. That's all building up to what's going to happen here the rest of the chapter to the point where the storm gets so bad the ship is actually lost at sea. So at this point, they realize what's going on. They're at a port called Fair Havens, verse 8. Do they stop? Do they go? Verse 9. Now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous... Because the fast was already over. The fast means the Day of Atonement. So we're late September, early October. We're getting into winter storms. They have to make a decision. Do we stay at this place called Fair Havens, verse 8, or do we push on to this other town called Phoenix? Phoenix is about 40 miles away. Verse 9. Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest in winter there. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. Here's where the story takes a turn. Now, granted, Paul doesn't say in verse 10, thus saith the Lord. Paul stops and says, guys, I don't think this is going to go good. Now, what right does Paul have to say this? He's a land lover, right? He's a good Jew from Jerusalem area here, Pharisee. We forget that according to 2 Corinthians 11, when Paul is kind of going through his resume of being an apostle, he has been shipwrecked numerous times and spent numerous nights in the sea floating up and down. He knows what he's getting into. He stops and says, guys, it's getting late. We should stop. This isn't a good idea. Now, this is where it gets interesting. What you're going to see here is three different things that happens. The first one that happens, verse 11, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. Now, that kind of makes sense. This centurion's a soldier. He's not Navy. He stops and says, okay, the owner of the ship says go, the helmsman says go, and the landlover Paul says don't. I'm persuaded by them. Here's our first point. Be careful who persuades you. Just got to be careful who persuades you. One of the things we tell the boys all the time, be careful of the circle of friends that you hang around because they're going to persuade you. They're going to influence you. It's just a fact. And so we need to be careful that we do not hang around, be around the people that are going to persuade us to do something that's not of the Lord. That's what it comes down to. Now, we stop and we think that we're not going to have, um, we're not going to get pulled into it and they're not going to have that much influence over us. But the truth is, it does. That's why we need to stop and make sure that we're spending that time and encouragement with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ for accountability and for encouragement. Does this mean you can't have non-believer friends? No, I'm not saying that at all. Just be careful of the persuasion. See, we're trying to encourage and uplift. Now, the world likes to persuade. You're going to go home today, you're going to turn on your TV, and every commercial is trying to persuade you. They're going to try to persuade you that right here, right now, you need to go to McDonald's and get something to eat. Just right now. They're going to try to persuade you to buy a car that... 
costs twice as much as what you make in a year. But they look so happy driving it. They're going to try to persuade you. They're going to persuade you that you need newer clothes. They're going to persuade you to go watch a TV show in a couple hours. They're going to try to persuade you to go spend your money and watch a movie. The world is constantly trying to persuade you. Guess what? I'm trying to persuade you right now to try to go deeper in Jesus Christ. You get to choose and listen. You're either going to be persuaded by the things of the world or you're going to be persuaded by the Bible, God's foundational truth. I can't make you be persuaded by truth. I can only encourage you and try to tell you to. These guys had to stop and say, do we listen to Paul? Do we listen to the helmsman? Do we listen to the owner of the ship? They chose the owner of the ship and the helmsman. That's what persuaded them, and it took them down a path that wasn't good for them to go. Now, God uses it for good. Amen. But be careful who persuades us. The next one. Look what happened in verse 12. Because the harbor was not suitable to winter, the majority advised to set sail. Be careful of majority rule. Be careful of that. We are the minority now on most moral issues. We're the moral minority. And really what it comes down to is be careful what it says. Remember Isaiah. Woe to him who calls what is good bad and what is bad good. We live in a world today where they try to take good things and call them bad and they try to take bad things and call them good. We got to be careful that just because the majority says it's right doesn't mean it's right. And just because the majority says it's wrong doesn't mean it's wrong. Our foundational truth is the Bible and who Jesus Christ is. It does not matter what the majority believes. If you've been with us in our study in the book of Revelation, you know in end times the majority goes with the Antichrist. We don't care what the majority does. We're going to stand true and we're going to stand firm. The Bible uses this term called a remnant. That there's always going to be a remnant, a small group of people that the Lord uses to do mighty things. Be careful of the majority. Now, you would think this sounds so junior high-ish. That you wouldn't be persuaded by bad kids. And don't let the majority tell you what to do. It still happens to us as adults. And sometimes the stories you guys come and say, Hey, could you pray for work and you tell me the work situation? Not that you guys are acting junior high-ish, but I hear your prayer request at the junior high thing. And I'm thinking, that workplace sounds junior high-ish. You probably think the same thing. I'm trying to be this moral, godly influence, and I got all these people that just want to act like that. Yeah. That's why God has called us to be separate, to be different. So be careful. Point number one, careful who persuades you. Point number two, careful of the majority rule. And lastly, look at number three, verse 12. They wanted to go to Phoenix. Okay, Phoenix. Why Phoenix? Phoenix was the Las Vegas of seaports. Fairhaven was a nice little port. But Phoenix, verse 12, oh, that was fun. Phoenix had the bars, Phoenix had the entertainment, Phoenix had the women, Phoenix had everything that the sailor would want to winter there. Phoenix is only about 40 miles away from Fairhaven's. Let's just push on, guys, for 40 more miles and just get there. Be careful of seeking out comfort and fun. It will come back to bite you. If you don't believe me, go read the book of Ecclesiastes where you see the guy get everything a man could want. And he's still empty at the end. So the extra 40 miles to Phoenix, not worth it. Careful of who persuades you, careful of majority rule, and careful of comfort and fun. But here's the problem. They go ahead and do it in verse 13. When the south wind blew softly, supposing they obtained their desire. Things worked out real good. This is what I've noticed. Things work out pretty good for a little bit. It was Greg Laurie that made a quote one time that I liked. He says that Satan is good at giving out free samples, hoping you come back for more. And it goes pretty good for a little bit. First part of the traveling, this has worked out wonderful. This is the best decision. Paul, you were wrong. I've seen people do this. They leave. 
they walk away from the Lord a little bit. They jump back to the world a little bit, fill in the blank for whatever reason. And it starts out, and this is, this is good. I finally have peace and comfort. This is what I've always wanted. And next thing you know, it blows up in their face because they're out of God's perfect will. There was a situation years ago. Uh, there was an individual that um, wanted to do something that was not biblical, was not of the Lord, and we were talking to her, and we just kept saying, this is not good. This is not of God. This is not going to end up well. Still chose it, went that path, ended up leaving. That's her free will choice. It was not of the Lord, and I don't think it was glorifying to him in any way whatsoever. Ran into her at a social engagement later on, and make pleasantries for a little bit. She spends the rest of the social engagement trying to convince me how happy she is. And it was the best decision she ever made. And I'm thinking, who are you trying to prove this to? Because I know what the Lord says is right. And just because, verse 13, the wind blows softly for a little bit, nah, it's going to come back to bite us. It's not worth it. Verse 14, but not long after, a temptuous headwind called your Clodian. We would call this a nor'easter. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. Remember, these ships were not good at maneuverability and wind. They were not designed for that. So basically, the storm hits, and what do they do? Verse 15, let the wind take us wherever it goes. That's the dangerous part of this world. Sometimes we just let the wind take us wherever it goes. Verse 16, running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty, the lifeboat. They grabbed the lifeboat. Verse 17, when they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. Fearing lest they should run aground on the surface sands, they struck sail and so were driven. They pulled down the sail. They take the lifeboat. They're starting to put cords on the boat to keep the boat from falling apart, verse 18. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. Now they're throwing their goods overboard. The cargo that's supposed to make them money, they're tossing, verse 19. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard in our own hands. Threw the gear overboard. Verse 20, now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we should be saved was finally given up. This is what happens. This is what happens when we don't let godly influences persuade us. This is what happens when we're not careful and we allow the majority rule. This is what happens when we seek out comfort and fun. We get into this storm. And next thing you know, you've lost everything. They're tossing their goods overboard. And it it is. Your joy is gone. Your peace is gone. Your life's gone. Your ministry's gone. And verse 20, you don't see the sun. You don't see the stars. It's dark. You're being beat on all sides by the tempest. And all hope is lost. And this is exactly where God wanted them to be. Because guess what? Now at this point, Paul can step up and represent Jesus Christ to them. Now he tried at the beginning to say, guys, this isn't going to work out real well. But now he gets a chance to really represent the Lord. Now, would it have worked the other way? I don't know, maybe. Maybe Paul could have got up on the deck of the ship and once again with the blue skies and the pretty sound of the waves hitting the boat, he could have said, you know, this is beautiful. Let me tell you about who created this. Maybe it would have worked. What I've noticed is, verse 20, when there's no sun, no stars, and there's a storm, and people have lost all hope, that's when they're generally more willing to listen to who Jesus Christ is. The Lord uses shipwrecks to get our attention. Go with me to Psalm 40, please. Psalm 40. Psalm 40 is a great psalm about being in the shipwreck, if you will. Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. 
He inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. What you have here going on in Psalm 40 is you have a guy at the bottom of the pit. Not only in the pit, verse 2, it's a horrible pit. He's in the miry clay. He's in that slop that's at the bottom that's really not a liquid, but it's really not a solid. And you kind of sit in there, and you stand in there, and you sink. That's where he's at. He needs help. So what happens? God brings him out of the pit. See, the Lord allows pits, the Lord allows shipwrecks in our life to sometimes get our attention. It's, it's a loving God that does that. John Corson has a great teaching point on this. He calls them storms to correct us and storms to perfect us. Sometimes we make bad choices in life that leads us to a shipwreck. God allows a storm to come in to correct us. We're wrong. Then there's other times where we didn't do anything wrong and the storm still hits and God says, I'm using the storm to perfect you. I'm using the storm to make you stronger. God allows it and it's worthwhile. Do we like it? Do we want it? No. We want to get out of the pit as quickly and as soon as we possibly can. The Lord uses it. we got to be careful sometimes, I believe, as Christians, as believers, to realize that we need to allow shipwrecks to happen in people's lives because it's actually going to work out good later on. I had a situation, it was a while ago, when it was Richard, Betsy, and me, we were praying in their living room, and, and some guy's name came up, and we were praying for him. And, I, you know, we're like, Rich and I were praying, like, what do we need to do? You know, how can we help this guy? You know, one of us need to go over and talk to him, text him, whatever. And, and Betsy just had this word of wisdom where she just stopped and said, you know what, guys? Maybe we just need to let him sit at the bottom of the pit for a while. Well, that's not the Christian thing to do, Betsy. You know, I thought you loved Jesus. It's wisdom. Sometimes people like to return to the vomit. Sometimes people, you get them out of the pit, and guess what they do? They jump right back in the pit. And as they jump right back in the pit, they say, help me, save me. So we save them again. And we spend all of our life just bringing people out of pits, watching them jump right back into the pit. Maybe the most godly thing we can do is let them sit at the pit for a while. Because who gets this guy out of the pit? I waited patiently for who? The Lord. He inclined to me. He heard my cry. He brought me out of the horrible pit. The Lord does it. And once the Lord does this, what does he do? He sets my feet upon a rock, a firm foundation. He established my steps. He puts a new song in my mouth. And next thing you know, many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. All of a sudden now, when the Lord brings this man out, God gets the glory, God gets the credit, God gets the attention, and next thing you know, this man is being a witness for what God has done in his life because God got him out of the pit. If you know somebody in a pit right now, you know somebody in a storm, I'm not saying don't help them. You let the Lord lead. The Holy Spirit will guide you when it's time to help, when it's time to not. I'm just saying sometimes the most loving thing to do is to let the pit happen. Sometimes the most loving thing to do is to let the ship go in the storm. Because when that moment of darkness happens and they don't see the sun, they don't see the stars, they don't see anything, all hope is lost. Guess what? Verse 21, Acts 27. After a long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. Is that one of the best verses in the Bible? Are you a I told you so person? That's biblical. You got it now. Men, you should have listened to me. Now we're going to stop right there. We know from studying out the Bible, Paul kind of could have been maybe a little bit of a difficult person. So we could have either looked at Paul in verse 21, kind of like, I'm rubbing it in, you should have listened to me. Context seems to prove, he says, saying, 
I was right then, so listen to me now because I'm still trying to help you guys. That's okay. It's okay to go into someone's life and say, listen, I love you, but I, I, I told you six months ago that the Bible said not to do that. That's allowed. But if you go in with this holier-than-thou, hey, you should have listened to me, that's, that's a problem. I told the 8.30 I wasn't going to tell this story at 10, but I'm going to anyway because Dawn's not here. Um, Dawn has this tendency that we'll, we'll have something where we're not seeing eye to eye on. It's not a fight. It's not an argument. It's just, just two separate thoughts. We're just trying to figure out which one's right. Should we do this or should we do that? And if it finds out that Dawn's right, she will look at me in such a loud voice, point at me and just go, I told you so. I was right. I, said, I didn't know we were fighting. I didn't know it was a competition. So just put Dawn on your prayer list. So what it comes down to, there are people that you should have listened to me. But I think Paul right here is saying, guys, I, I tried to tell you before we take off, and I, and I want you to listen to me now. Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there'll be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of, the, of God, excuse me, of the God of, to whom I belong, to whom I serve. Saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those that sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men. For I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now, they're willing to listen now. Why? Because there's a storm and the ship's going to crash. Were they willing to listen when everything was great? No. That's the sad truth. And that's the truth for some of us here. We got saved when it was rough. We were willing to listen. When everything was going to good, we, we weren't willing to listen. I heard a pastor teach one time on sharing the gospel. He says, just be careful when you share the gospel that you don't go up to someone and say, you need Jesus. Why? Because your life is completely emptyless, empty and just void, and you need joy and peace. They may not be an empty, void life. They may have a better house than us. They may have a better job. They may have more fun. They may be in full joy mode. So when you present the gospel that way, they don't hear it. They're not in a shipwreck moment. They're in a blue sky moment. That's why the heart of the gospel is we're a sinner going to hell and we need Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't die on the cross to make me happy. He died on the cross to save me from hell. The gospel is presenting that. But there's also times where people are under shipwreck and you can go to them and say, Listen, your life is a mess. I got the answer. Let me introduce you to Christ. These guys were willing to listen when they knew the ship was going down. They had no hope. So what should they do now? First thing, listen to godly counsel. Paul is saying, godly counsel, I cannot encourage you enough. Let the counsel that you listen to be from on fire, born again believers of Jesus Christ who are giving you God's word. Don't let anything else persuade you. Let it be that. Number two, what do we see here? You're going to have fear. Verse 24, do not be afraid. I make this comment all the time, just like we were going through Joshua. If the angel had to appear in verse 24 to tell Paul, don't be afraid, why did the angel appear to tell him that? Because Paul was afraid. God doesn't waste his words. He doesn't send an angel for no reason. You are going to have fear in life. What are you going to do when you have fear? You're going to trust in the Lord and move forward. That's what you're going to do. There's going to be things that make you nervous. There's things that make you worried. There's things that make you anxious and things that make you afraid. Those things, when you take those things into your life and dwell on them, that's going to lead to sin. No, Lord, I am battling fear, worry, and anxiety. I give this to you in the name of Jesus, and I ask that you replace it with peace. That's Philippians 4, 6 through 8, right there. 
So there's fear, but don't be afraid. Because why? Look at verse 24. You must be brought before Caesar. Remember God's promises. God promised Paul back in Acts 23, you're going to Rome. He didn't promise him you're going to die in a shipwreck on the way to Rome. He promised you you're going to Rome. God has made promises to you. Those promises are that in all things God works for the good. That God has a wonderful plan for your life. Now you hear me say this a lot. God's definition of good may be different than your definition of good. But God works good and wants to move in your life. Remember God's promises. Next thing. Verse 25. Therefore take heart men for I believe God. I think this is important. I heard a pastor teach on this one time and I love this point. I believe God. Not I believe in God. I believe God. Demons believe in God. Satan believes in God. And there are no atheists in hell. They all believe in God. But we believe God. It's a big difference right there. We believe what he says. We believe what he does. What I have noticed is the difference between that person that really wants to grow deeper in Jesus versus that person that's just, I don't know, the casual Christian. The casual Christian believes in God. The person that wants to go deeper believes God. This is my life. This is everything. I believe God. And the last point right here, verse 26, however, we must run aground on a certain island. Sometimes the boat wrecks. And it's still in God's perfect plan. Did you ever think about that? Sometimes the ship wrecks and it's still God's perfect plan. That's the sovereignty and the authority of God. So listen to godly counsel. You will have fear, but you trust the Lord. Remember God's promises. Believe God, not just believe in God. And understand that sometimes the boat will sink. Now I got to tell you, I used to teach Mark 4. Mark 4 is the story of where the uh, disciples are on the boat and Jesus is asleep on his pillow. You remember that? The storm hits and the disciples are freaking out. So they go wake up Jesus and they say, don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus wakes up, rebukes the storm. The storm stops and he basically looks at his disciples and says, where is your faith? Then he grabs his pillow and goes back to bed. And when I've taught that before, I would say, as long as you're in the boat with Jesus, the boat won't sink. Well, Acts 27, the boat sinks. (laughs) Sometimes the Lord saves you through the storm. Amen. And there's sometimes the ship sinks and it's still God's perfect will. I want you to remember that. Because we're basing success off the ship getting safely to port. God's basing success off people getting saved. He has a different definition of success than what we do. So now they hear this. Verse 27. Now when the 14th night had come as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. They took some soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. That word for pray right there in verse 29 is really interesting. We don't know for sure. Because this word for pray in the Greek can also mean wish or it can mean pray. Some of your translations actually translate it wish. They wished for day to come. I don't know if we fully understand sometimes what prayer is. I talk to a lot of people, and a lot of people tell me about how much they pray. And I just wonder if it's more of just wishing. You know, I've run into non-believers or people that claim to be Christians. I don't know if they were, and they got an awful situation going on in life. They're like, well, we're praying all the time. Are they praying, or are they just kind of rubbing the magic genie lamp of God and wishing and hoping that things get better? Prayer is real communication with the creator of the universe. Prayer 
It's a time of worship. It's a time of confession. It's a time of thanking him. It's a time of asking. Prayer is being in the word and saying, Lord, I want to really communicate with you and listen and speak to you. And I just want to encourage you to really understand what prayer is. When you, when you have your prayer list, when you have that prayer time, like when we tell you right here, you know, take the VBS calendar home and pray. We're not saying to go to God and say, well, I, I, I hope kids come. No, pray. Lord, we pray these kids come with an open heart and an open mind and their, and their hearts are ready and they go home and tell Jesus, we're really communicating with the creator of the universe and saying, Lord, we want to see you move and work. And so I don't know for sure in verse 29 if the sailors are praying or if the sailors are wishing. I don't know. But I've seen a lot of people call wishing prayer. And I want us to have a real understanding of what it means to communicate with the Lord. Verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. The sailors stop and say, this isn't going to work. Grab the lifeboat and leave. Paul says, can't. We need to stay together as a group. So the Roman soldiers who have swords... Stop and say, we're cutting away the lifeboat. So verse 32, the soldiers cut away the lifeboat. Think about that for a second. The lifeboat drifts off into the storm. The lifeboat, the boat that's supposed to save you, they cut it. See, by them cutting the lifeboat, it is showing them that they are committed to this, they're dedicated to this, and there's no escape route, and there's no quitting. Sometimes in life, guys, we need to be willing to cut the lifeboat and say, I'm focused, I'm dedicated, and there's no easy escape from this. Is that difficult to do? You bet it is. You bet it is. I just want to encourage you, if you're in a situation right now and you just want to quit, ask yourself, is the Lord telling you to move on? Or are you just jumping in the lifeboat because you're ready to be done? There's times in life you want to quit. There's no doubt about that. You know, marriage is a great example. And I just want to pretense this was by saying this. Listen, the Bible says that God hates divorce, but please note the Bible does not say God hates divorced people. There's a difference there. God hates the concept of divorce. I don't know anybody who likes the concept of divorce. Dawn and I, you know, have decided in our marriage that, you know what, it's just not an option. The lifeboat's cut. It's just not an option. Like it or not, we're stuck with each other. Like it or not, the lifeboat's been cut. I I remember one time... um, doing marriage counseling with a very young couple, only been married a very short amount of time. And and every time there was a difficulty, there was this jump back to mom and dad, jump back to mom and dad. Got to cut the lifeboat. That option's just not there. We got to be able to do that and just say, I'm dedicated, I'm committed. And it's not only in that, it can be in anything. I know guys that their lifeboat is drinking. When the going gets tough, they just start drinking again. I know people that their lifeboat can be other things. There was a gal one time we did counseling with her. Her lifeboat was shopping. When life got too hard, she just went and spent a whole lot of money. And she felt better. There's guys whose lifeboat is to get online and look at inappropriate images. We've got to cut those things and say, I'm dedicated and I'm committed to what the Lord has called me to do. And it's a really big thing in verse 32. But you cut the lifeboat and you let it slay away. And you realize you're committed to what the Lord is doing at this moment at this time even if it's the middle of the storm. Verse 33. And as the day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day. You have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is your survival, since, you, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. That's amazing. We're in the middle of a storm. We've already thrown the, the, uh, the uh, supplies overboard. We've thrown the gear overboard. We've cut the lifeboat. And verse 34, eat, because not a hair will fall from your head. 
Verse 35, when we had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And we had broken it, he began to eat. Verse 35, it sure sounds a lot like communion. Doesn't come out and say it's communion, but it sure sounds a lot like communion. The wording there is similar to what Paul uses in Corinthians. We don't know, but look at the result. Verse 36, then they were all encouraged and also took food for themselves. What encouraged them? The Lord. The storm's still there. The storm's still going on, but they were encouraged in the Lord. See, the guy that's in the pit. Look, God brought me out of the miry clay. God brought me out of the horrible pit. What changed? Nothing. The storm's still there. The ship is still going to sink. What's changed is their perspective. See, we told this parable. If you remember the wise man that built his house on the rock and the foolish man that built his house on the sand. You remember that from Sunday school. The storm hits and the foolish man's house gets knocked down. What we have a tendency to forget is the same storm hits both people. A storm hits the wise man on the rock and the same storm hits the foolish man. You're going to go through storms. The only difference is that if you're here today and you know Jesus Christ, your foundation is God. And so therefore, you can be encouraged in verse 36 and eat, even though the ship's going to sink. Think about that. Think about that. You're you're on a boat. You're on a plane. The captain comes on and announces, we're sinking. We're going to crash. And then you call for the stewardess and ask for more peanuts. Because this is totally cool. God's got this. That's faith. That's trusting the Lord even in the darkness and the storm. And that's part of our witness. Is that when everything is falling apart, we don't respond and act like the world. Verse 37. In all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. Okay, now they've lost their food. (laughs) So basically, their gear is gone. Their produce cargo is gone. Their food's gone. And now they're just waiting for a shipwreck. And they're pretty happy about this. Verse 39. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go of the anchors and left them in the sea, meanwhile loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. Hey, let's put the sail up and crash this puppy. Verse 41. But striking a place where two seas meet, they ran the ship aground, and the prow struck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. Please note 41. Stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. This is chaotic. This is crazy. This is a mess. This is dangerous. And it's perfectly in God's plan. The Lord's using this. Verse 42, And then the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. Just gets better and better, doesn't it? And this is still God's plan. We got this missionary book that we read at home. And it's just a fascinating book to hear these reports of missionaries in just different places of the world. And you hear about that. Their life is physically threatened. Verse 41, there's violence, there's storms. It is just crazy, chaotic. And they just stop there and smile and say, this is exactly where God wants us. Did you ever think about that? I just want to encourage you, if you're in the middle of a shipwreck right now, now it may be a shipwreck you created, that God's trying to correct you on. But it also may be a shipwreck that the Lord allowed you to go in to perfect you and to make you different and stronger in the Lord, to be a light and a witness. And yes, that may mean violence and threats and just everything. Verse 43, But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. Remember Roman rule and law at this time. 
As a Roman soldier, if you were responsible for prisoners and your prisoner escaped, you got the punishment that that prisoner was supposed to get. So from a Roman soldier perspective, it's best just to kill all these people. We can't keep them safe. We can't protect them. We don't know what's going to happen. Nope, the centurion steps in and says we're going to keep these people safe. And so now here they are, shipwrecked on an island, no food. It's a mess. It's a complete disaster. And it's exactly where God wants them. Because now in chapter 28, they get to minister to the people at Malta, and they get saved. God got a chance to witness to these 276 persons on the ship, and some of them get saved. The shipwreck was an amazing blessing of the Lord. But in the midst of that violence and that storm, do we see it? No, we need to walk in faith and trust. If you are here this morning, and your life is a shipwreck, I'm asking you to trust the Lord. I'm asking you to do exactly what Paul says right here. Listen to godly counsel. Not walk in fear. Remember God's promises. Believe God, not just believe in God. Realize the ship may crash, and God still has us under control. Please remember what we said at the beginning. Careful of who persuades you. Careful of majority rule. And be careful of seeking out comfort and fun. Let the Lord lead on what's best. Worship team, if you can come forward here. This sets us up for chapter 28. The ministry at Malta.